This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Welcome to Asian Insider, a podcast series by The Straits Times. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. And today, we talk about Pakistan. Now, Pakistan's GDP growth this past year came in at less than 0.5%. Remember, the country was hit by a truly epic flood disaster last year. Annual inflation is at over 37%. Think of that, over 37%. And IMF bailout talks remain in limbo at the moment. On top of all that, the country is in political turmoil. On the 9th of May, former Prime Minister Imran Khan, who was ousted from office in the parliamentary no-confidence vote last year, was arrested on corruption charges. His supporters rioted with mobs attacking army headquarters and other military installations. That precipitated a crackdown, which saw his Khan's followers being arrested en masse. Meanwhile, the Pakistani Taliban has been increasingly brazen in its attacks on civilian and military targets across the country. Now, I could go on, but essentially, this is not a small problem. This is a country of 230 million people, a nuclear weapons power in a very volatile situation and in a volatile neighborhood, and it deserves more than a couple of days of headlines. To make sense of all this, I have joining me today Hussein Haqqani, a former Pakistan ambassador to the United States from 2008 to 2011, currently diplomat in residence at the Anwar Gargash Diplomatic Academy in Abu Dhabi and a senior fellow as well at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining me, Ambassador Hakani. Pleasure joining you, Nirmal. So let us perhaps start with recent events, which briefly made global headlines when Imran Khan, whom I should add, became a national hero of sorts when he was Pakistan's cricket captain and won the World Cup in 92. He was ousted in a parliamentary vote, as I said, and more recently arrested. His supporters attacked the army, which had once supported him. How is one to understand this dramatic turn of events? First, we must understand the political layout in Pakistan. Pakistan has had two major political parties for a long time. The Pakistan People's Party, which is by and large dominated by the Bhutto family. Uh, and the Pakistan Muslim League, which is right of center and is dominated by the Sharif family. Now, both these two families and the two parties have never been trusted by the military, believed that they were corrupt because they engaged in patronage politics. But more important than that, they had a vision which involved putting the military politically aside and also uh, both at different times tried to make peace with India, which has always been anathema to the military in the past, which because uh, it prefers this resolution of outgoing, uh, outstanding conflicts with India before having normal trade or other relations with India, which these two political parties have at different times supported. Now, both these parties have been accused of corruption and removed from office uh, in the past. And in doing so, the military has always been instrumental in perpetuating a narrative that these political parties are undesirable, accusing them of all kinds of things, including treason in the past. Now, the party of Imran Khan, the Pakistan Tehrik Saf or PTI, was a very small party between 1997 and 2013. Imran Khan managed to get elected only once to parliament. His party never won any seats. It was not an electoral force. And in 2013, the military decided that it's going to use the PTI to try and get rid of the other two political parties or at least make them weak. That's when Imran Khan basically tailored his views to the military's views. So he, his narrative became 
purely against these two political parties. So his support base today comprises primarily of people from military families, people who supported the last two military dictatorships of General Ziaul Haq and of General Musharraf, benefited immensely from those two military regimes, each lasting about 10 years each, hate the other two political parties or dislike them intensely, and saw Imran Khan as a new messiah. Now, Imran Khan's problem is that he doesn't have any belief system or ideology. He has been all things to all people at different times, a cricket hero, a celebrity whose answer to most questions is, I am the solution. In the process of all such political engineering, what always happens is that some people actually buy into the narrative a lot more than others. So he has a cult-like following as well. Now, by 2022, after three and a half years in power, the mili- uh, Imran Khan being in power, or at least being in office, the military realized that Imran Khan was not actually making any progress in ending corruption. He was, in fact, his own party was indulging in corruption because it's endemic. It's a cultural thing. People who are in power always try to make money by using that power. It's unfortunate. It's bad. It's wrong. But it happens. And and more important than that, uh, he was also not allowing the military to show flexibility in its uh, long-held views. The military wanted to have some kind of uh, arrangements with India which he, because he had already publicly taken a stand, he didn't want to go back on. The military wanted good relations with America. He had always been anti-American. So, there, And then he wasn't very good at the conduct of foreign policy. He insulted foreign leaders that had been close to Pakistan. And in, in most things, it was all, his solution to every problem was coming on television, giving a very effective speech, but never making any policy. So the military decided that it's going to withdraw support from Imran Khan. This enabled the major political parties that had been sidelined and pushed aside by the military support for Imran Khan to regain power. They brought a parliamentary vote of no confidence. Instead of accepting the parliamentary vote of no confidence as a normal thing in parliamentary democracy, Imran Khan decided first to blame the United States and then to blame the military and specific generals in the military. His supporters thought that all they needed to do, because they came from military families, many of them. One, for example, one of the people who has been arrested for attacks on the military installations is the granddaughter of one of the former military chiefs. The son of General Ziaul Haq is in Imran Khan's party. The grandsons of Ayub Khan, the first Pakistani military dictator, everybody who was in General Musharraf's cabinet, many of them are in Imran Khan's party. So they thought, oh, this is more like a quibble among generals. What we will do is if we show to the military that, look, you are losing your popularity as an institution because now you are supporting the same people you told us before were crooks and looters and they are bad people. And Imran Khan was the good guy. So let's just go and show this to the military. And so they went too far, in my opinion, on May 9th when they attacked military installations. Their desired outcome was that the military will come back to supporting Khan, seeing that, oh, the people are all in favor of Khan. Let's just support him again. That didn't happen. The military decided to launch a crackdown. And the crackdown is similar to the military's crackdowns on other political parties in the past. No one is being spared. Imran Khan's party is not really designed 
to withstand that kind of pressure. These are not people who are street fighters. These are not people who know that when our party is out of power, we will be put into prison. And then when we come back into power, we'll put the other side into prison. These are people who have had a simple and easy life, are more keyboard warriors, more than they are street fighters. And so now they are feeling the pressure. So the party is dismantling much faster than any political party that has come under military pressure in the past is dismantling. And yet, Imran Khan remains a great story because of who he is. And so he keeps giving interviews to the international media. He remains alive. But really, he's fighting a battle for his political life. It's very unlikely that he will be able to come back easily now because his party has been taken away from him. And the military will have to figure out, first, how to marginalize him. Second, how to live and coexist with political parties that the military has historically and traditionally disliked. Okay, I think you partially answered what was going to be my next question on the role of the military. So I'll just fast forward a little bit to an article you wrote in Foreign Affairs recently. You had mentioned attacks by the Pakistani Taliban. Now, there has always been some degree of worry about the vulnerability of the Pakistani state. And in fact, there have been wars with India. There have been political assassinations. There are these attacks by the Pakistani Taliban. How vulnerable is Pakistan? So Pakistan remains politically fragile, but the Pakistan military on the one hand is the problem because its political engineering and intervention is what has not allowed Pakistan's leadership to come up with new solutions and a new path forward for the country. But on the other hand, it is also a huge force that can maintain some semblance of order. The country is fraying economically, its social fabric is in tatters, but it manages to be kept together by force of arms. And so how vulnerable is it? I would say that Pakistan will remain in a flailing position and in a weak position. But if somebody thinks that it's going to come apart very quickly, uh, that is not the immediate scenario. That will probably be down the road if possible. The country's economy is more vulnerable than its integrity and unity. Its stability is more vulnerable. So Pakistanis often say that we are a resilient nation and Pakistan has proved to be that. But it's a resilience that allows them to survive without succeeding. Okay, quite well put. What do you advocate? You've written and spoken about the culture of tit-for-tat, political vendettas, retaliation and so forth, the need for national reconciliation. Is that actually doable? It is doable, but it needs too many people to agree. And unfortunately, that agreement never comes. Look, in the 1990s, Mr. Sharif's party and the Ms. Bhutto's People's Party, the two of them kept fighting with each other. The military alternately took advantage of them, used one against the other. They eventually, in 2006, when both were out of power and General Musharraf was the military dictator of the country, they both agreed to something called the Charter of Democracy, which agreed to certain rules of the game. And after the 2008 elections, the two parties cooperated in amending the constitution and making it more democratic, taking away the power of the president, for example, to dismiss parliament unilaterally, a parliamentary form of government, allowing the various regions of Pakistan more autonomy. Now, these two agreed, guess what? The third actor came in, which is Mr. Imran Khan. And right now, Imran Khan is learning the lesson that those two learned, that instead of aligning with the military, 
against the other party, you should work together with the two with the other parties to try and uh, help ensure that the military is out of politics and politics is conducted according to the normal rules of democracy. That is the way forward. But more important, now it is very clear that the military is a political reality as well. And it has interests, it has power, and it has a worldview, which are the three things you need in a political force or a political party. So maybe they need to be part of any national reconciliation. Lastly, political parties and the military in Pakistan need to get over their old mode of accusing each other of the worst and then saying, because the other side is the worst, we can't talk to them. Look, your citizens are the same country. You have to live with one another, whether you support Imran Khan, whether you oppose him, whether you support People's Party, whether you oppose it, whether you support Muslim League, whether you oppose it, or whether you support the military or you oppose it. In the end, all citizens have to put their citizenship of the country before their factional or political affiliation. This solution is desirable. But if you are asking me, is it going to happen? I don't think it will happen in the short term. Because Imran Khan has consistently shown that he would rather have a deal with the military against the political parties than with the political parties and the military for some kind of a stable order. Even now, his message is, I want the military to negotiate with me because I control the streets or I can control the streets and therefore the military should talk to me and let's kick these politicians out of politics. That's not going to work. The military realizes that for all their weaknesses, the politicians are willing to operate within parliament, whereas Imran Khan is willing to use muscle and to use extra parliamentary means and go so far as unleash young people, angry young people on the streets to attack the military and to set buildings and uh, vehicles on fire. No one likes chaos. So what I'm seeing is more the more likely scenario is some kind of an agreement among the old political parties and the military on how to move forward without Imran Khan. And that will then drive Imran Khan and his supporters into a corner. The question then will be, how well do they fight back? When other political parties were driven into a corner in the past, they had strategies to come back. Then we will have a very different kind of political game. But if he can't come back, then what we will have is some kind of an election some democratic process, but again, hybrid regime in which the old parties will replace Khan's party and a lot will depend on how the politicians and the military negotiate with one another rather than everything being out in the open and transparent politics. Okay, before I let you go, quickly in a couple of minutes, if you can, any thoughts on Pakistan's relationships with the United States and with China? Pakistan has been very close to China. Pakistan has been an ally of the United States for years. Pakistan loves to hate the U.S., but Pakistan needs the U.S. for economic reasons. The United States is Pakistan's biggest export market. If Pakistan wants to improve its technologies to become a more more productive export-oriented nation than it is, it will need American cooperation and technology as well and investment. But The United States has been frustrated with Pakistan because there is a belief in America that Pakistanis don't keep their word with the U.S. They take advantage of the U.S. but don't do what they promise. And then the U.S. has chosen India as its big Asian partner. 
also in the rivalry with China. So that puts Pakistan in a spot. How Pakistan can resolve that? Well, I think the smartest move for Pakistan would be at this time to reach out to India. Resolve the issues with India, then you don't really need China in opposition to India and you don't need America to break with India to be opposed to you. That creates a huge new export market for Pakistan. Trade opens, tourism opportunities open with Indians coming into Pakistan and spending dollars. And Pakistan puts off any idea of conflict with India for the foreseeable future. That, again, is one of those ideas that are brilliant on paper. And when they come out of my mouth, maybe not so brilliant, but they are not practical in the sense that nobody on ground is actually about to implement them. So for the foreseeable future, Pakistan will straddle this little divide between China and Pakistan. 25% of its debt is now owed to China. It's closer to China than it is to the United States. It just wants to be wooed back by the United States. And that is just not happening for the moment. Okay. Hussein Haqqani, thank you for joining me today on Asian Insider. That was fascinating. Thank you very much. You're welcome. That nicely wraps this discussion up for the Asian Insider podcast. I'm your host, Nirmal Ghosh. Join me and my expert guests for the next episode on the fourth Friday of every month. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.